Hello and welcome to Parley, the Hindu's weekly podcast where generally two contrarian views are expressed by experts in their respective fields on issues of current affairs, the economy, the judiciary, climate and energy and the likes. For this episode, we are asking if offering subsidies and doles come election season takes away from addressing the more systemic issue of unemployment plaguing the Indian economy and if political parties have generally shied away from addressing this issue in a more methodical manner based on informed macroeconomic policies. As you may be aware, five states go to the polls at the end of the year, Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh, Rajasthan, Mizoram and Telangana. These several of the political parties have already offered subsidies and doles indeed. To speak more about this, we are joined by Praveen Chakravarti from the Congress, as well as Suresh Babu from IIT Madras. Praveen, if I can ask you to introduce yourself. Hello, this is Praveen Chakravarti. Um, I'm an office bearer with the Congress party. And uh, something a little bit more about your background. (laughs) Yes. All right. Hello, I'm Praveen Chakravarti. I'm a, a senior office bearer with the Congress party. Uh, prior to my uh, foray into politics, I was a political economy scholar in a think tank, and I spent uh, over two decades in the financial services industry as a, both an economist and um, as an investor. Right. Thanks, Praveen. Thanks for that. And Suresh, if I can ask you to talk a little bit more about your own background. Hello, this is Suresh Babu. I teach economics at IIT Madras. I've been here for the last two decades. I teach courses on Indian economy, some bit of international trade and finance and development economics. I have had some bit of policy experience at the state level and at the center level. Excellent. Uh, Thank you both so much uh, for that introduction. I think I'll jump into what the issue here is. Now, as we already know, for instance, now with uh, uh, elections uh, coming up in Madhya Pradesh, for instance, uh, the Congress party has has sort of used this template, which it did in uh, Karnataka, which is the sort of five promises. And uh, this time, the five promises have been reducing the price of LPG to 500 rupees, giving 1500 rupees per month for every woman and about 100 units of electricity uh, free. It's They've sort of halved it from 200, which was offered at Karnataka. And of course, farm loan waiver and an implementation of the old pension scheme. So if I can uh, come to you, Suresh, first, uh, some might say these these are populist measures, but they don't really address uh, the much larger systemic issue of of unemployment, particularly in uh, largely rural states like Chhattisgarh and Madhya Pradesh. Your reaction? Yeah, there's no doubt of the fact that the single major problem that India is facing now is the question of unemployment. This is especially so for the educated youth of the country. Having said that, we need to have some long-term vision to tackle this question of unemployment because we are in the cusp of reaping the famous demographic dividends. But then, if you're not going to address the structural problems that are prevailing in the economy, this demographic dividend might turn out to be a demographic disaster. Okay, coming to this whole issue of electoral promises, 
I think it's a mixed bag for two reasons. One, some of the promises, and we see five major promises that have been really, you know, projected for these elections. Out of the five, some I think perhaps are required, but some are not. For example, if you look at the whole question of our old pension scheme, as well as the kind of, you know, issues related to that, I think it's a tall promise that we are, we are giving to the electorate, reverting back to that. But at the same time, some of the doles, especially in terms of LPG prices, etc., seem to be reasonable. Why I say this? I say this for two reasons. One, conventionally, policymakers and economists characterize growth as a big tide which lifts all boats. But unfortunately, not all boats are lifted in this tide. There is a section of the population who are left out of the growth process. And we need to include them. Yeah, As the cliche term, inclusive development slash growth is often used. We need to include these people also into the growth process. And for that, I think we need to really dole out some money in terms of so-called populist measures. But some of the other measures or promises that, you know, political parties promise could have long-term fiscal imbalances. Such as? As I mentioned earlier, the going back to the old pension scheme, for example, writing of the farm loans, because these have long-lasting impacts on the state's finances. We know that the state's finances are already slightly under pressure in certain states and under severe pressure in some other states. Given, given this background of the stress on state's finances, some of these measures could actually accentuate the problem, but some measures are really needed, needed to include the marginalized and the poor to be a part of the growth process. Right. Uh, Suresh, a quick follow-up before I throw it to Praveen. Especially when it comes to the rural economy, given that remunerative prices have been hard, uh, farm loan waivers are seen as the next best option when employment and remunerative prices are not really possible. So is there anything else that you might be able to suggest, if not farm loan waivers? Well, I think we need to have... Uh a more pragmatic approach towards price stabilization. Recently, we saw this whole tomato price kind of a syndrome that we, we, we see in every season almost. The problem there is, you know, there is wide fluctuations in prices and the farmer is not guaranteed of a minimum steady price. It is here that we should seriously think about technological interventions in terms of procuring in terms of converting it into higher value-added products, etc., could be a long-term solution rather than a quick fix in terms of writing of the loans. Right. So more like a, so more like a higher value chain, sort of supply chain resilience is what you're suggesting. Exactly. Okay. Uh, right. Praveen, if I can ask you to react to this issue of whether are we distracting from uh, you know, job creation in these, uh, particularly uh, come election season with these promises? 
See, I think we have to um, understand the kind of larger context of e- um, economics, political economy, and the society that we live in. Um, and I will try and explain this using an analogy. I mean, I think we all seem to agree that there is a disease, the disease of unemployment, joblessness, and all of that. The so-called um, uh, surgeons um, or the experts, such as economists, do not have a solution for the disease. They don't have, there is no remedy for the disease. So in the absence of a remedy, the only thing that we can rely on to alleviate the pain is palliatives, is band-aids. So you, these are painkillers that we are um, indulging in. So I don't think it's an either or here. We need painkillers as long as we don't have uh, a more structural solution for the disease. And the fact is, this is where the profession of economics um, has failed societies at large. And this is not just an India problem. There is the problem of jobless um, growth um, in almost every part of the world, in every country. Um, In fact, I wrote a piece in the Hindu uh, some uh, maybe about a year ago saying, whose GDP growth is it anyway? Why are economists so obsessed about GDP growth? Who is it? Whose growth is it anyway? And uh, you and I see a piece today by Mariana Mazzucato um, talking about exactly the same question about why this obsession with growth when it's not really translating into gains for people, for the app, for the median person. So and the fact is, we do not have a solution for it. Right. The productivity obsession over the last 30 years since the neoliberal consensus took hold is not as benefited uh, the top very, very, very much, but not the median person. So in the absence of that, what do you expect political parties and political leaders to do when they are the ones who actually have to face the public every five years? So I do not think these are, um, you know, it's a mutually exclusive uh, condition or they are uh, pitted against each other. If there is a solution that can generate jobs and incomes and prosperity for the median person, I think the political parties and the political leaders will be the first to jump on it. But there is none. Right. But on the, you know, on the issue of job creation, uh, coming back to agriculture as a sector, since uh, Suresh also raised it uh, about the sort of uh, unprecedented price rise in essentials, particularly vegetables, uh, and what we realized were uh, severe supply chain vulnerabilities. When governments, uh, you know, when political parties now promise to give, say, 1500 rupees per month uh, in the hands of women, indeed, uh, several, because of unemployment there is also a lack of disposable income but when there is a problem of a shortage of supply uh, are we then accelerating or rather allowing enabling further uh, inflationary tendencies to take hold in the economy while there is actually as you pointed out jobless growth and how does one address that See, these tensions are inherent in an economy right i mean these are what we call terms of trade Um, Remember, in an economy or in a society, every producer is a consumer and every consumer is a producer. So, um, uh, you know, to the extent that, you know, we tinker with one one side of the uh, equation and the other side does get impacted, I don't don't think that can be denied, right? 
But really the question is balance. How do we balance these? Um, when there is joblessness, when there is uh, stagnant income growth, when there is a decline in purchasing power abilities for the bottom half of the population, to say that, okay, don't indulge in safety nets and support for them because it will trigger inflation for everybody is being a bit unfair. Uh, We understand that there is to be a balance that, that has to be struck. But I must say that I do agree that there are certain promises which um, I think are perhaps um, um, unwarranted or unnecessary. Um, And I've talked about this in the past, which is the old pension scheme. So the old pension scheme, you know, I I think the old pension scheme is not so much uh, um, a problem. uh, I think what, what basically it is, is it's actually a problem of inequality. It exacerbates inequality. So what is it that we're saying? So if you take uh, Madhya Pradesh, for example, Madhya Pradesh spends close to 12, 13% of its overall expenses on old pension scheme, on pensions. Uh, but who does, who does it benefit? The less than 2% of people who are in government's jobs. So it's actually a transfer from the poor to the rich. Right. So, so in some sense, the old pension scheme should be criticized for its inherent inequality. Right. So not not so much for its fiscal profligacy, fiscal profligacy, of course, but it's inherently unequal, um, unequal rather. So um, I and and I also actually do think and and this is where I can tell you as a political economist, there is simply no empirical evidence to suggest that an old pension scheme helps win an election for a particular party. I think that is just a myth that has been propagated by lazy sections of the media that look for simplistic explanations of electoral outcomes. Right, right. Okay. So on this particular issue of the old pension scheme being being a, a rather drain on the on the exchequer seems to be something that both of you do agree upon. And there seems to be a lot more uh, sort of nuanced understanding. Uh, let me come back to uh, the, the earlier question of uh, whether these subsidies, uh, you know, indeed uh, is a drain uh, on the uh, uh, on the exchequer, and in fact, the fact that most of the times uh, what has it has not been correlated to is uh, whether in in any way it uh, uh, it creates jobs in the economy. So, if we are to draw attention to the case of Haryana, most recently, um, you know, the the counterfactual case would be. Uh, that uh, Haryana strictly adhered to the Fiscal Responsibility and Management Act, uh, the 2003 Act, uh, you know, uh, as you would recall, enacted by uh, the former BJP government uh, while Yashwan Sinha was finance minister, and uh, uh, and which limits the uh, fiscal deficit to three percent. While that, while Haryana had done that, it also had the highest unemployment rate in the country, uh, successively for more than two quarters, even going by the government's Ministry of Labor's own periodic labor force survey. So, is there a correlation here that we are missing? Uh, and uh, yeah, how must we look at this? And if I can ask Suresh to start with this, yeah. So uh, Haryana is a very interesting case, but then. On the whole, if you look at uh, state finances and their state expenditure pattern, there is no robust relationship that we find in terms of correlating uh, higher fiscal deficit 
only with so-called populist policies. States that are in uh, fiscal distress, as uh, Praveen was pointing out, already have a very high uh, payout in terms of salaries and pensions. And it's not the populist measures that are really impacting there. But there is a problem in terms of tackling it in the long run because the revenue mobilization efforts of some of the states are actually not very good. And here, there is a kind of a shrinking of the fiscal space because as the revenue efforts of the states are less and the state's ability to raise resources from so-called other sources are also limited, then the expenditure has to be extremely careful. And it is in this context that we should actually see some of this whole, you know, populist expenditures and things of that sort. But having said that, I want to draw an attention to one of the very uh, interesting data points that, that has come out recently. We were talking about this 1,500 rupees to women, right? If you look at the data uh, which is put out in today's Hindu newspaper, we find that 25% of Pradhan Mantri Ujjala Yojana, you know, consumers did not even look into a refill of the cylinders, which means that even after having a small component of subsidy, subsidy they just don't have the purchasing power to, or they just can't afford to have a gas cylinder. So some of these targeted sections then need to be considered when we talk about this so-called populism. Here, I would actually uh, take off into a slightly different view from Praveen. See, ultimately, GDP growth is important because if you look at India's growth scenario over the years, we find that it is precisely in the years when we have had very high GDP growth that we witness poverty reduction also. So focusing on growth is important, but we need to also bring in the whole dimension of growth with employment. Now, there are two things which we need to keep in mind here. Not only India, developing economies in general are going through a lot of transitions. And two transitions are very important in terms of employment generation. One, there is a structural transition that is taking place. And some countries are not able to cope up with that. They are getting trapped in the middle income trap and some are not able to really push industrialization. Second, we find that there is a huge energy transition which these economies will have to take. And the employment implications of these are very, very important. And we need to have long-term thinking on these kind of transitions. And that is the point which I would like to highlight here. Right. Okay. So, uh, uh, much more of the structural issues that you're looking at that requires attention. Uh, but uh, it's interesting that you point out uh, about the, the correlation between GDP growth and employment uh, uh, and uh, and poverty reduction. While while Praveen just pointed out the, the fact that this trickle-down theory has not necessarily given dividends. Uh, Praveen, if I can come to you to answer the same question uh, about, about the correlation between government doles and subsidies and employment creation or economic uh, activity. Um, first, I object to the use of the word dole. Um, uh, I, I think uh, 
what's uh, one person's dole can be another person's safety net or uh, what a one state's dole for a particular state could be uh, a necessity for another state so i don't i object to that um, uh, use of the word second um see i think it's basic it's econ 101 theory that if you put money in the hands of people it triggers consumption it triggers uh, which which has uh, you know effects in the economy so that's i mean that's economic theory you know you can't you can't refute that so to that extent putting money in the hands of people do help uh, do help in the larger economy the real question is is that the most efficient use of uh money i think that's what we are debating here right and we're like i said we are governments and political parties and po- political leaders are forced to resort to this in the absence of another solution what we are saying is tell us another way that will help solve the problem with the say use of the same money and we would be glad to you to 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 put the money to put money to use there you know see i um of course i accept that you know gdp growth broadly defined did work in the first say uh, 10 12 years where it led to overall poverty reduction my argument is it has stopped working it has stopped working because what we don't measure is the median we keep saying per capita per capita is not the median So as long as the rich keep getting richer your per capita will keep growing up that doesn't mean poverty reduction so i think so we so so we have to focus on the median when we say is is putting mon- money in the hands of people the best way to ensure job creation not really i think we have to understand um, and that's where i agree with uh, uh, professor suresh's um, arguments about structural changes now i'll give you an example now we have this obsession over semiconductor manufacturing suddenly okay so there is there was a new project that was announced micron industries where 75% of the project cost was given by the government of india taxpayer money but but semi micron by its own as um, uh, estimate says it will only create 5000 jobs in the next 10 years so what is happening is what we used to think of traditional manufacturing as yielding jobs car making steel making uh, semiconductor chip production those don't yield jobs anymore for a variety of reasons for largely because of mechanization right now you let me flip that and say instead of putting that money in semiconductor what if we said we also need mining when we do this energy transition what is the most fundamental requirement it's it's mines and minerals and rare earths lithium sodium potassium uh, all of these um, minerals that we need india is india is a vast country we have mined less than 5% and what does mining do mining creates jobs it creates local jobs it creates jobs for um, the oppressed caste so why are we not putting that money into mining why are we not encouraging mining because the world anyway going to go through this transition this is what i mean by we have to be a little bit more nuanced and detailed when we start thinking about it i mean instead what we hear make in india and manufacturing will create jobs no 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 manufacturing does not create jobs anymore you have to think about what manufacturing does so i think these are very important questions huh 
right yeah but if if we you know if i flip that question i mean you you began by saying economists have sort of failed to give to provide a, a, a say a, a theoretical framework to get out of this problem of jobless growth particularly in the in the current uh, era of automation and high growth in the service sectors and uh, not so much particularly employable growth in the manufacturing sector if i can probably like sum up uh, what you're saying usually political parties are the ones that come up with solutions or rather at least put forth uh, put forth ideas during their election campaign so uh, one of, one of the things to, one of the ways to cite even uh, the congress's own manrega for instance uh, or, or rather the upa government's manrega policy of the 100 day job guarantee scheme particularly for the agriculture sector because that's the largest employer was something that helped uh, but that also doesn't seem to be something that the that the that the opposition parties uh, seem to be focusing on anymore. No, I, first I I don't consider Mandrega as a job generation program. I think it's an unemployment insurance program. Um, it's a program that says for those that do not have any other means of income, come toil in the sun for minimum wages. So it's, it's actually an unemployment insurance. And in fact, in my view as an economist, our goal as a country should be to minimize the demand for Narega, which means people are able to get other jobs, other better paying jobs. So um, that's the way I look at Narega. What I mean is, yes, you tell me, what, when, what is the last idea that economists have put out other than GDP growth, the world's, which are the fastest growing economies? GDP growth projection. I mean, institutions like the IMF and the World Bank are, are really redundant right now. They're parroting the same thing that they've been doing for the last 40 years. What is, how does GDP growth matter anymore? So I think the only kind of theoretical um, uh, arguments or, or solutions that I'm hearing are from people like uh, Professor Danny Roderick at Harvard University, who is incidentally not an economist, but a political economist. Because... Um, so, for example, like the, in the example I suggested, wh- why are economists not talking about industrial policy? Mining is more job intensive versus manufacturing. So we need both can both will lead to GDP growth. But whose GDP growth, which GDP growth matters? And that is where I think the economists have failed us. Um, Suresh, I think you probably you should come in to react to this now. Yes, yes. <laughs> I uh, I'm very happy that you know Praveen uh, mentioned Danny's name, an economist whom I really admire, and I will I will say an economist, not a political economist, more because Danny's <laughs> work I admire are very technical economist. But, work. He, call, but he calls himself political economist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I draw a lot of insights from Danny's work, and you know he's a fantastic economist. But there is there is something else that I want to add here, actually. You know, uh, economists, a lot of economists have moved away from this obsession from GDP. And it is really uh, uh, some time back that we started to think about what could be the roots for growth. And when we search the roots for growth, we have we have now a very uh, interesting and an important route that is human development-led growth. Our conventional thinking was that Growth will actually lead to human development. But then experience of our neighbors in uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, show that if we really emphasize on human development first, then that is the route towards faster rate of growth. And we have examples of that. 
unprecedented rates of growth in these economies for 25 years, which you know, uh, we, we have all been you know, discussing and debating. So I think we need to think about putting human development as the kind of a route for tapping into more growth rather than waiting for growth to trickle down. So, and it is here that we really need to think about uh, important aspects of human development like education, health, and the capabilities of these people to perform in labor markets and really uh, getting them with more and more opportunities. So, um, all in all, I would say that, well, um, the old model perhaps has not delivered, but then there are new models. And we have to really look at these new models from a comparative perspective on international development. See, if I may come in, um, and this now I'm going to speak as a um, as a politician, as an active politician. See, this is where I perhaps um, have a divergence with um, the, uh, the 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 academic economists. As politicians, we have to face people every five years. We have three years to deliver to people. We, the solutions cannot be educate a generation and wait, um, improve skill sets and wait. Um, you know, and so this is where I see a huge uh, kind of uh, tension between the solutions that we hear and what the actual demands are. So it's impossible for politicians to go to a family and say, don't worry, you're screwed right now, but your next generation will be great. So. And, and that's unviable for us. And so, hence, this is where I think it's, this is an interesting time. We really have to kind of come together because it's only the, the economics profession that will be able to come up with ideas because, I mean, all the smartest minds are there. They, they know this. They have the knowledge. But then they have to kind of cater to the real demands um, and the pressures uh, where there are uh, that, 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 political leaders and people face. Right. So on that note, uh, and with hope that uh, the economists would rise up to this occasion of a changing, you know, quite rightly, as you pointed out, Praveen, a changing uh, global order and uh, an, an entirely new economic paradigm that is emerging uh, on the face of an energy transition and climate change. Um, and, and you know, uh, so much more automation in the economy. Uh, let's hope that there is there there are solutions that the, that economists come up, and and that's all we have time for for this episode of Parley. Thank you so much, both Suresh and Praveen, for taking the time to participate in this episode. Uh, and for all our listeners, you can listen to Parley on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe to it, share, and that's the best way to spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.